Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Vincent Reinhardt owns the research of the American economy. With 24 years at the Federal Reserve System, he is the one who literally codified and invented modern research at the Eccles Building. He is with Mellon, their chief economist. Vince Reinhardt, I want you to explain to radio and TV what Jackson Hole really is. A bunch of PhDs listening to dead serious papers. Describe what really goes on at Jackson Hole. It's the biggest concentration of central bankers, and central bankers love to talk amongst themselves. And so that's the opportunity for them to uh, address what they're all concerned about. And what they're all concerned about now is just how the global economy is going to pull itself out of the pandemic. And moreover, how they are going to pull themselves out of the unconventional policies they've got themselves into. I had the honor of sitting on the lawn years ago, Vince Reinhardt, with the wonderful Alan Meltzer, with Carl Bruner getting this summer soiree started with the Carnegie Rochester series of decades and decades ago. And it goes to the emotion of these serious events. Willem Bauder blowing up years ago at some controversial paper, the controversy of the late Marvin Goodfriend's paper of 2016. What will be the controversy this year? I... uh... I think the big issue is to find out uh, where Jay Powell is relative to his committee. Uh, What did we learn this week? We learned that the FOMC, by and large, wants to head to the taper. Uh, Ask ask Rob Kaplan that uh, later today. Uh, Wants to start slowing asset purchases. We heard it pretty firmly in the minutes But when Jay Powell at his press conference was asked about it, he didn't seem anywhere nearly as convinced, nor did he really convey that view of his committee. So which is it? Is Jay Powell really want to head to the exit or he doesn't? This is his opportunity, if he wants to, to confirm where his committee wants to go or to slow him up. How closely, Vince, do you think that Jay Powell and the other Fed members are watching the Delta variant and the various shutdowns that we're seeing, whether it's port closures or whether it's uh, delays to the return to office of a number of different companies? Uh, Delta is the the ace card that Jay Powell can pull out of his sleeve uh, if he wants to slow up his committee. I think you, you, Lisa, and, and Kaylee had it exactly right. What have we learned over the last 18 months? Bad things can happen to good people, and they're very bad. Uh, In that environment, you want to buy insurance. Uh, That insurance includes Treasury securities. Rates are low. That includes staying away from market activity. Uh, That's serious. And from a monetary policy standpoint, it brings into the question of risk management. Mm. Do you want to head for the exits if, in fact, uh, something bad could happen in between, and you're you're wrong-footed. Well, and, uh, and so if 
Well, thinking about how the Delta variant informs Fed policy, we know this Fed is prioritizing the labor market and the recovery there. That seems to be taking precedence over inflation. And we heard from the U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh yesterday saying that some states who have already rolled back those enhanced unemployment benefits may need to actually put them back in place because of the Delta variant. I mean, how do you think about that factor into the jobs recovery? Yeah, that, that, that's a really important point. And it tells you the problem of leaning forward in an uncertain time. You just may be leaning, leaning in as events turn against you. And the really interesting thing about the minutes, Kaylee, was in fact, they were less hierarchical about their dual objective. Mm. For the last year, it's always been employment, 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 inf- price stability and inf- the inflation. The second half of the dual mandate was in the background. In the minutes, they said they were worried about, they had made substantial further, or rather they made further progress toward employment and probably were at their price stability goal. So they were bringing back that mandate. Now the question is, if they're really worried about the outlook, uh, do they push concerns about inflation further into the background? Just real quick, in terms of their concerns about inflation, how much do you expect them to highlight how this has been a K-shaped recovery and how the inflationary pressures that we're seeing are actually hampering the people on the lower uh, brackets more than others? That's what everybody forgets about the 1970s, and, and that is that, that inflation is a, a regressive tax. And part of it is what's that doing to real wages at the lower end of the, end of the spectrum. Look, j has been extremely good in framing policy uh, more inclusively than any of his predecessors. And it, it, you, you've identified an opportunity right. for him to, to complain about inflation, not just because it worries the bond market stars. Vince, I got 30 seconds. I'm so sorry. You and Carmen Reinhart wrote the paper of the summer last year, Foreign Affairs on the Pandemic Depression. Have we exited the pandemic depression? Absolutely not. Uh, A message was rebound wasn't recovery. Uh, We still have a lot of lost output in the U.S. And importantly, what we have done is forbearance, not forgiveness. That is, at some time, at some point, all those, uh, all, all those payments right. is going to come due. What's okay. going to happen then? We are out of time. Let's do it again. Vincent Reinhardt, thank you, with Mellon, their chief economist. Let's get right to it. And we are thrilled to start strong on Friday with Dennis Gartman. He's the retired editor of the Gartman newsletter, still writing the Gartman newsletter. And it is a jewel today in his retirement, which harkens back to Saigon. That cartoon, Dennis Gartman, in your morning letter is painful. It is very painful. The the relationship or the similarities between what happened in 1975 in, in Saigon and what is happening now in Afghanistan are frightening for those of us who were around back in the 1970s and remember how that looked. It is, a, it, it is dismaying to see the United States a position in the world having right. been diminished as badly as it has been. This is a very disturbing circumstance that's prevailed. And this is a long, long week, and we have a long time ahead of us to worry about the loss of right. perspective here in the United States. Dennis, Lisa wants to jump in, but I've got a, a, your, your newsletter is a jewel on how prices are priced at the margin. Almost there's a yes. marginal pricing of the margin at the margin. Explain that. 
Well, first of all, in, in, in all markets, I've always maintained that price is made at the margin. When the last 2% of buyers become sellers, prices go down. When the last 2% of sellers become buyers, prices tend to go up. Price is made at the margin. And what bothered me this time was looking at the mar level of margin being used in the, in the stock markets at these days had been going up for 15 consecutive months, coextensive with a bull market in stock prices. But there's always been a very leading indicator that the use of margin has led the market to the downside, has led the market to the upside. And now for the first time in 15 months in July, the use of margin, and I've maintained that that's where, that's where wise and sophisticated, smart money has been leaving the market since July. It's very disconcerting. That tends to lead the stock market higher or lower by, by several months, two or three or four months, sometimes a bit longer. But when you start to see margin usage declining, you have to be careful about the stock market itself. It is one of the better leading leading stock market indicators that I have learned to watch over the course of my nearly 50 years of being in the markets. Dennis, what does this mean in terms of some sort of drawdown, considering that a drawdown these days is perhaps maybe a half a percentage point decline? Well, I think there's more going on here than a half a point decline. Take a look at the broader market. We tend to pay too much attention to the Dow, too much attention to the S&P, way too much attention to the NASDAQ. And nobody's paying attention to the broad Russell index, which has not made a new high now in several months, has broken its upward sloping trend line several weeks ago that goes back into March of last year. Something is happening in the broad market that doesn't seem to be in, taking place mm. publicly. The, the public is still involved in the markets. It still sees the Dow making new highs. It still sees the S&P and the NASDAQ making new highs. And you brought up the fact that you have to pay attention to what happened in Amazon. Amazon for the technicians gapped lower dramatically almost 10 days ago and has not come close to bouncing since then at all. And, and Amazon had been one of the leaders to the upside. When the leaders, when the generals get taken out and get shot, you have to be worried about what the sergeants and corporals and privates are going to be doing. Yeah, and I look at things like the AAII sentiment survey that we got this week, the bears out, out exceeding the bulls for the first time this year. Have we started to see a real shift in sentiment this week? I think you have. I think that that's starting to take place. I think there's no question about it. People talking about the inevitable tapering of, of the Fed's expansionary policies, that's going to happen, whether it happens in October, November, December, January, certainly that's going to happen. And, and I have maintained all along that the great bull market that we've gone through has been almost solely predicated upon the expansionary policies, not just by the Fed, but by the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, the ECB, the Bank of Japan. And the Fed is, is clearly, it's sometime in the next month, two months, three months, four months, going to start the process mm. of tapering whenever that happens. Right. That's less money coming into the market, and money will leave the stock market and go into the expanding economic circumstances. Clearly, the economy is doing well, and that's what happens at turning points. Stocks go up before the economy turns higher. Stocks go down before the economy turns lower. Stocks are going to start moving lower, and the economy will continue to, to not boom, but be really quite, uh, quite expansive, quite strong. Dennis Garbin, thank you so much. Too short a visit this morning to get us started on this Friday. Chairman the University of Akron's endowment uh, fund. On a Friday in August, it's always important. And on Bloomberg Radio, this plays so well.
I went into the closet this morning. My closet with my suits is about, in the West Wing, they say, it, it's a good 30 feet long. Seen it. And, you know, I said, I said, blue is the only way to go. And I come Sometimes. in and, you know, Teal's got the blue thing going and Lisa's got the blue thing going. And I said, cancel the guest at 730 and find someone in blue. <laughs> Gabriela Santos joins us now uh, in J.P. Morgan Blue. And that is always good uh, to see. <laughs> Gabriela, thank you so much. <laughs> Uh, for joining us on a Blue Friday here. And one of the things you talk about is something John Farrow and his gloom on the way to Crete talks about, which is the drawdown. And you say, and particularly with China, drawdowns are normal. We should not be afraid of the Farrow drawdown. Well, this drawdown we're seeing in China is, is absolutely business as usual for investing in Chinese equities. Every year you should expect a, a 20% annual correction. And every three years or so, you tend to have an over 30% correction. We had this in 2018, we had it in 2015 and 2011, and it's unrelated to the economic cycle. It's related to China's regulatory and reform campaigns, which tend to happen every once in a while. It takes time to rebuild confidence, but three months out, uh, Chinese equities tend to be up 10%, uh, and six months out, they tend to be up 20% during these moments. Wait, hold on a second, Gabriella. Are you saying that it's a good time to go buy Chinese equities? We fundamentally disagree with the thesis that China is now uninvestable. And that is not what we're speaking to our clients about or hearing from our institutional clients. It's really still a story about building a strategic allocation to Chinese onshore equities and onshore bonds. To me, that is one of the most important themes of the next decade is the rise of China in portfolios. And it's really just about navigating these moments of volatility and thinking carefully about how to invest in China rather than going through an existential crisis every time we get these drawdowns. And in fact, it's, it's what one of your guests said, the CEO of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund on Wednesday, uh, not rethinking that long-term allocation to Chinese onshore equities. Well, let's talk about how to invest in China. Let's go there, especially at a time when you've got so many cross currents. You've got the regulatory uncertainty around the shifting priorities of the executive uh, leadership in China. You also have the slowdown that you're experience, uh, experiencing, as well as the COVID policies, which are much stricter than in places like the United States. How do you parse through all of this noise and figure out how to allocate at a time of such incredible uncertainty? The noise is so high right now. The volume is extremely no. high. I think the trick is not to see each thing China says or does as an independent uh, development, right? It's all a piece of a bigger puzzle. And what is that puzzle? It's all about this new phase of Chinese development. It's moving from a middle income into a high income country over the next five, 10 years. And it really wants to shift from the quantity to the quality of growth. And everything it's been doing over the past few months is aligned with that long-term plan. And what's quality? It's growth focused on innovation. What's innovation? It's not internet and social media. It's deep technology and renewable energy. Yeah. And it's quality also in the sense of the quality of life, 
for workers, for customers, and for merchants. Well, you talked about renewable energy there, Gabriella. China, of course, is trying to reach net carbon neutrality by 2060, and it wants to have peak carbon emissions by 2030. And I'm wondering how you just kind of think about that green transition when talking about an economy and a, a growth trajectory that has been powered by the industrial economy. So an example of how China, you know, we tend to think about China as being really difficult from an ESG perspective, and it is starting from a, uh, you know, further behind than other countries. But this is an example of China moving in the right direction here, thinking about the E. And China is extremely serious about this energy transition because it's focused on reducing pollution and improving the quality of life for its people. And this is going to involve a lot of carrots and sticks. Right, carrots in terms of uh, developing its domestic renewable energy market, solar wind, uh, carrots in terms of boosting the penetration of EV auto sales. China's already the largest EV market in the world, and this is just the beginning. And it involves sticks. China launched uh, an emissions trading scheme this year to, to put a price on carbon and increase the cost for heavy industry. So it's all about that transition to higher quality growth and really navigating the winners and losers in that phase. Well, and we've seen this borne out in commodities, specifically when you look at iron ore futures in Singapore. I mean, they're trying to pull back on steel production. A lot of that has to do with environmental concern, and that has shown up. But it also, the other side of that is the growth concerns that, that Lisa was alluding to. And I'm wondering how you think about PBOC policy here in a decelerating China. One quick comment on the commodities. Yep, they're losers, kind of some of those heavy uh, metals like iron ore and steel, but they're also winners, something like copper, for example, which is a huge input into renewable energy and electric vehicles. So mm, a perfect example there. Mm. And in terms of policy, I think the way to see this is China, every time it has a growth slowdown, it's going to step on the accelerator less and less. Um, so unlike, you, you know, China five years ago. So it's very targeted easing here, maybe a reserve requirement cut or two, very targeted towards credit in high end manufacturing and private industry. It is not that old China that lifts all boats. Yeah, Gabriel Santos, thank you so much there on China. Some of the optimism within a pharaoh like drawdown. It's been an extraordinary week. I really want to say thank you to all of the Bloomberg surveillance team for starting strong with Thomas Barfield of Boston University. And I end my Friday here with George Friedman, geopolitical futures founder and chairman with me, Kaylee Lines, as well. Lisa Bramwitz preparing for the nine o'clock hour. George, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. There is that sentence in your essay which in the last century, we were at war 17% of the time. What went wrong? Well, we started to go to war 21% of the time. We were hit, remember, by Al-Qaeda. We went into Afghanistan on a raid uh, to capture Al-Qaeda. We failed in that, and they escaped at Tora Bora. And then <clears throat> we were in Afghanistan, and we didn't know what to do. So we did what we do know how to do. We sent troops in and tried to create a different country. Afghanistan is Afghanistan. It has been that way for a very long time. Many have tried to change it. And in the end, we spent a generation there, 20 years. We'd gotten nowhere in terms of pacifying the country, and it was time to leave. And when you leave a war, as in Vietnam, it looks ugly. <clears throat> right. It was more ugly than most, but it looked ugly. 
George Friedman, I thought of you about four or five days ago of my 1956, when I was barely remember, in the Hungarian Revolution. You've literally lived, get out of Dodge, get out of a country as well. How do you see the United States assisting Afghans who Admiral Stravitas say the Taliban won out of, uh, won out of Afghanistan? How do we get them out smoother and faster? I don't know. There are probably hundreds of thousands who'd like to leave. We don't have the aircraft to move them out. And remember, Taliban is the most powerful force in the country. They won the war. They will impose the kind of rules that they want to have. We may negotiate with them, but at this point, we've reached the situation where we are not in control of Afghanistan. We don't get the option to make decisions. Right. You mentioned complexity. Are we having complexity, policy complexity, tactical complexity, because we don't have a theory, we don't have a view, we don't have a strategy? The fundamental interest in the United States is to make sure that North America is secure. Our number one interest is easy. Keep Canada and Mexico happy. Don't lie with anyone else. Number two is control the oceans. Uh, we control the Atlantic and control the Pacific. We're secure. We can get involved in Eurasia once in a while, very, very carefully. But these all-in wars, like Vietnam, like Afghanistan, places us always at a disadvantage. The native population doesn't like us. They want us out. And they're going to beat us because they're not going anywhere. We're coming in. And we're never going to have enough force to take on a country like Afghanistan. So we're frivolously involving ourselves in things that look good we delude ourselves that our enormous power, and it is enormous, uh, is infinite. And then it's always easier to stay another year than to leave. The longer you stay, the uglier it gets. Well, obviously, the United States has power. It's a matter of how it is used. Are we no longer going to see the U.S. as a global hegemon and as, as, as the police, police country of the world? A global hegemon is very careful in how it uses power. It doesn't fritter it away on secondary issues. Afghanistan was never a strategic issue for the United States once Osama bin Laden left. It was a country that the Russians were defeated in, the British were defeated in. It was a very difficult country. So we have to make sure that our cost benefit analysis is correct. There is a price in going to war. We don't just wave a wand. And we saw that in Vietnam and we didn't learn. We did it again. And now after 20 years, there are people are saying we should have stayed longer. We're not going to win. Right. How long would we stay? George, you are expert in our machinery as well. Have we finally figured out that technology doesn't win in Vietnam, in Cambodia, that technology doesn't win in Kabul or up north on the border with Uzbekistan? It could win if you're prepared to inflict horrible casualties on the enemy. Extraordinary casualties. Uh, technology is a wonderful weapon for killing, but it's indiscriminate. The United States was not prepared properly to engage in an indiscriminate war against the Taliban. And the problem wasn't tech, lack of technology. It was we fought a war that we didn't have to win, and therefore we pulled our punches. Mm -hmm. Unlike Germany or Japan, where we did everything we needed to win, we probably didn't do that in Afghanistan, but then we shouldn't be there. 
George Friedman, thank you so much. I look forward to speaking to you uh, again. George Friedman, a Geopolitical Futures founder and chairman. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.